Welcome to the Bleacher Connection with Ken and Trevor, part of the Unhinged Sports Network. As always, if you guys have any questions, comments, things you'd like to hear, you can hit us up on social media. I'm at the BleacherCon 2. Trevor is at the BleacherCon 1. As well as we have our Facebook page, uh, Bleacher Connection with Ken and Trevor on Facebook. On this week's episode, we're going to stray away from a little bit of our normal just hockey talk. And we're going to focus on some uh, recent current events that came to light this week. Um, the first one we're going to focus on is Mitch Miller and the Arizona Coyotes. We also need to touch on Justin Turner and the World Series. And the OHL has implemented a no body contact ruling. We're going to discuss that as well. And as always, we're going to have our weekly That's Offside moment. So let's get everything kicked off here. And Ken, I'm going to throw it to you. What caught your eye this week in the world of sports? Well, I know we're kind of a little late on it, but this kind of happened uh, after we recorded our last episode was game six of the World Series. And uh, it's not the result of the World Series that I can kind of considering off that what's that's offside this week. It's Kevin Cash pulling Blake Snell with uh, – with him being in the game, him firing bullets and only giving up two weak hits at by that point, he got pulled after the second hit. And uh, it all comes down to analytics. We've spoke about it before. I don't like it. I don't think that the game should be determined that way when the manager's looking at it is analytics. And I will say they are part of the game. They are needed to look at certain aspects of it but I don't believe the game should be governed by the numbers. Let's call a spade a spade here, Ken. The decision by Kevin Cash was dreadful and it quite possibly cost his team a world series. It definitely cost him an opportunity to get to game seven. This game was on pace to quite possibly finish one, nothing. Blake Snell was unhittable. He against the top six batters or sorry, the top three batters in the lineup in the first two goal rounds, they were 0 for six with six strikeouts. That's typically the best batters on the other team's lineup. And you're telling me you didn't want him facing that part of the lineup for a third time. And that they had almost predetermined when he was going to come out of the game prior to the game, even getting going. It's absurd. Well, with the rate that Kevin Cash came out of the dugout, you're absolutely right. He knew that was going to be it. I think, you know, we're talking sixth inning. He's only thrown 75 pitches. He, he wasn't at a high pitch count. They weren't knocking him around the park. And to your point, the next three guys were their best hitters coming up, but they were all 0 for 6 combined. Blake Snell has a legitimate reason to look annoyed and upset as he is getting pulled from that game. Uh I don't like analytics. This is why they cost them the game, whether they would go on to win, you know, game six or even go on and win game seven. We'll never know because they went solely off the numbers. They, that was the decision right there that cost the Rays the world series. I really appreciated that. You could visibly see that Blake Snell was mad. And rightfully so. There was no reason for him to be coming out of this ball game. And he knew it. I think everybody knew it. Social media knew it. It blew up. 
and Kevin Cash got roasted on social media. And rightfully so. It was absolutely ridiculous. In my opinion, Blake Snell very well could have thrown a complete game shutout or gone seven, eight shutout innings and then only have to turn it over to your bullpen for one, maybe two innings in that game. But instead, you turn it over to the bullpen and literally three batters later it was, they were trailing 2-1. It was absolutely terrible. And this is why analytics don't work. You pull a guy who has gone through the lineup twice. He's got them all out easily. And then you bring in a guy who the numbers say they're going to hit and they're going to hit hard. I think I forget who they brought in, but he had been hit for seven runs in the world series by the Shockingly not Aaron loop. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it sounds more like those were his blue Jay days as opposed to now, but they brought a guy in who had, who did not have good numbers actually in gameplay because the analytics said it was the thing to do. And this is why I just don't agree with it. It is a horrible decision. Well, whatever happened to the eye test, what you see is what you're getting. You can't take that out of professional sports. I don't care what the numbers say. If you physically see another player or a pitcher or a hitter dominating, you don't take them out. Like this is on par with you pulling a guy who's gone three for three with two doubles and a homer in the bottom of the seventh inning with the bases loaded because you think the guy in, in the dugout has a better, a better chance of getting a hit against the pitcher coming in. You would never see that. So why does it happen with the starting pitchers? Yeah. Well, I mean, as a Blue Jays fan, we have seen it where they pull a guy or keep a guy in late in a game instead of pinch hitting because the numbers say he's going to do well. Yet he sat for how long doing nothing as opposed to the guy you say, who's three for three with a home run and on a hot streak. It, I don't think Kevin I, I honestly good. don't get it. I, I just do not get the decision. And Tampa Bay, they burnt themselves. Analytics may have got them there in the first place, but unfortunately, analytics destroyed any, any chance of them winning the World Series. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the thing is, you were talking about getting Kevin Cash being roasted on social media. He was getting it from athletes in all sports, not just other baseball players. You know, I think Patrick Mahomes chimed in on it and a few others because they were just all in disbelief that you take a guy out in that situation. So even the commentators were in disbelief. It was, it was shocking. It, it literally was shocking. Yeah. Yeah, no. And it is like you trying to win. You always want to put your best foot forward. You put yourself in that best opportunity to win. Now, if your starter is going, let him go. I don't, again, it just goes to the, whatever's happening over the last couple of years in baseball where starters aren't throwing as many complete games and, and being pulled after five or six, because like, as you say, the numbers tell you the third time through the lineup, they're going to get hit. That's not the case. Right. According to the definition of a quality start in major league baseball, Blake Snell didn't even qualify for that because you have to go six innings to be a quality start. You're trying to tell me that the way he was pitching that night, was not quality Kevin Cash. Yeah. And I think uh, that's why we're here talking about right now. And that's offside. I think uh, 
Should we ask Wes McCauley what he thinks of it? I would think so. Wes, what do you got? After reviewing the play, it was determined that the play was offside. All right, so that that leads us into the next area. We kind of wanted to take a minute before we moved into our main topics for, for the week because, unfortunately, sadly, this past week, uh, the Canadian sports world has lost two icons, I will say. Uh, first at the beginning of the week, uh, BC Lions owner David Braley uh, passed away. And it's a tough one as a BC Lions fan. He was someone that he did everything he could to keep that team alive and thriving. But he also kept the CFL alive. At one point, he owned two teams. He was part owner of, of the Argos. He was the owner of the Lions. And that was because he wanted to see the league thrive. He didn't want to see the league falter in any way and have a chance of potentially losing a team. And the amount of effort he put into the CFL is just, it's incredible. And it, it's a big loss for not just the BC Lions, but CFL in general. It's a, it's a big loss. David Braley bled the CFL and the man personally com- committed hundreds of millions of dollars to that league. Even upon his passing in his will, he gave the BC Lions enough money to operate successfully for seasons to come was how it was described. So even in his passing, the CFL was still one of his number one priorities and he wanted to make sure that his team was looked after there. There's always a place in the world for people like David Braley, who they were so passionate about a, a Canadian league being successful that he, he did whatever it took. And like you mentioned, Ken, he was the, the owner of two teams at one time to make sure that the, the league stayed successful. So David Braley is, is an amazing person. Well, he, not just an owner of two teams. He was the owner of the BC Lions. He had, a, I believe it was almost 50% stake in the Argos, but he was also a, a Hamilton Tiger Cats season's ticket holder because that's where his family lived, was Hamilton. So you're talking about a, a man who you know, financially has helped support three teams. Yeah. He had a stake in three teams in the league. Yeah. So if the CFL had colors, he bled them. He he was a huge part as to why the CFL has been successful, has made it through the tough times because when he bought the lions, he didn't pay cash for them. He didn't purchase them. He assumed their debt. Yeah. That's what he did. He didn't, he didn't say, okay, well, you pay off all your debt and then I'll buy the team from you. No, he just assumed their debt to make sure that they remained in operation. A huge part of the league and definitely a, a big loss. A second loss to the league. I think it was, it may have been the same day or it was the day after. And a huge loss to the city of Edmonton was that of Joey Moss. For those of you who may not know who Joey Moss is, he was brought into the Edmonton Oilers organization by none other than Wayne Gretzky. Wayne Gretzky met him in the, out in the city of Edmonton at his current job. And I can't remember exactly what it was. And he asked if he'd be interested in working for the Oilers. 
and Oilers ownership brought him in. Uh, Joey Moss suffered from Down syndrome, but he was one of the most positive and influential and upbeat people in the organization. And after becoming a member of the uh, Edmonton Oilers, the Edmonton Eskimos, or now Edmonton Football Club, also brought him in to become part of their organization and on the training staff. And Joey Moss bled Edmonton. He bled blue, orange, green, and gold. And even though they were some of my biggest rivals, Joey Moss stood out from that. What he stood for was hope and for so many people. And he, he was an icon. He's probably a bigger icon than Wayne Gretzky and Mark Messier in that city. Yeah. I, I, you know, living in Edmonton for the past, it was almost, almost seven years now, been to a few Oilers games where I kind of got to be close to where Joey Moss sat. He always sat behind the Oilers bench for the, for the years he wasn't there in the locker room or during, you know, during the game, he, the positivity, the energy he brought to the, to the team uh, was just incredible. It just, you know, and from everything you read this past week and everything you could see, every player that went through there enjoyed their time with them, always had good things to say and just how much of a positive impact he had on them. I think one of the, the funniest things I had heard before his passing was that Joey Moss didn't care who you were. If he was in that locker room uh, vacuuming at the time or doing anything, he didn't care. He'd run your feet over if he didn't get out of his way. I just kind of thought that was, that was funny. Like, you know, he didn't care about the status of who you were or, you, you know, that kind of thing. He just, he was there and he was going to go do his job and he just very positive. I mean, lots of stories of Joey Moss showing up at street hockey games to play, but he always bring his friend Wayne. Right. So you have these local street hockey games going on and here comes Joey Moss and a buddy and it's Wayne Gretzky. So he really was an icon of the community. And whether you were a fan, a player or a member of the media, they all knowed and adored and loved Joey Moss. And he will be sadly missed. He is a he was, is and forever will be a pillar of the sports community in Edmonton and across the CFL and, and NHL in general. So yeah. our res- respect and condolences go out to both the families of Joey Moss and David Braley, Absolutely. both terrific human beings. Absolutely. Now we're going to move on to our first topic for our show, and that is, I'm going to straight up call it the debacle that has become Mitchell Miller being drafted by the Arizona Coyotes. Ken, did you want to lead us off on this? So the Arizona Coyotes this year didn't have a first, second round pick in the draft because of trades. Or they third had, round, I think. No, yeah. they Well, the first two were gone through by a trade. The third one was taken away uh, by the league for holding improper prospect camps to, you know, get a better idea of what they can do, which is illegal and known that you can't do that. So the fourth round pick that they had was their first of the draft. And they decided to take Mitchell Miller at 111th overall. Now, the problem with that is it came out this last week that 
Mitchell Miller at, at 14, so four years ago, I think it was in juvenile court, was convicted of bullying. And I don't know if it was, if it was assault was included in that, but Mitchell Miller and another uh, boy, teenager, decided that it was a good idea to not just bully, but also racially assault another student that was a disabled person not just disabled but a black uh person of color for years they tormented this this uh poor guy by calling him lots of names that i will not even get close to describing because it's not appropriate they put candy in a urinal and gave it to him and the problem with the arizona arizona coyotes drafting was they knew this because Mitchell Miller had drafted an apology letter to the 32 NHL teams to apologize for his actions. Now, to me, there is no apology. Why are you apologizing to the NHL? I, it, what really bothers me is that the actions that he took were not a one-time thing. His actions were horrendous, absolutely horrendous. And the Coyotes... The disappointing and, thing... Sorry, go ahead, Ken. Uh, no, say the Coyotes and Mitchell Miller, the, the amount of backlash that has come this week is 100% earned. There's a few things that really disturb me about the situation. A, the fact he got drafted in the first place. And a terrible decision by the Arizona Coyotes... There were as many as 10 teams that had him marked as do not draft in at all. And, but unfortunately had the Arizona coyotes not taken him, I can almost guarantee another team would have. So that, and that's just another bad, bad topic for hockey in general that we may touch upon or could be its own future show for on its own. So a, the fact he got drafted in the first place, B, the fact that he wrote the apology letter only to the NHL teams at no point did he ever write an apology letter to the family. And well, he, it took, so, sorry, Trevor. He, there was a court mandated apology that he had to write, but he, which was done. But the fact you're right. He never, I mean, this came from his, um, I, I want to make sure he never genuinely right. apologized to the no. family. no, no, Isaiah Myers Crothers, his his mother came out and wrote a statement after everything kind of came to light this week that the fact that he's never shown remorse to her son and that as of two years ago, uh, he still was bullying her, her son. And the amount of people online saying that, oh, people deserve a second chance and uh, he was 14, like... No, you know better at that age. I'm sorry. You know better. Yeah, you hit on my third point that I was going to bring up that made me disturbed. And that was that he showed no remorse, apparently, because like you just said, he went right on after the fact. And even after doing his community service and such, it continued on. And the mother of Isaiah came right out and said it continued on. He showed no remorse, did not care. He clearly had not learned his lesson. 
and what he was doing, like you just said, he was 14. He knows what's better and what's right, what's wrong. He knows he was in the wrong. And it was, it's appalling what he's done. Yeah, it it wasn't a one-time incident. It wasn't one time. It was years that this happened for. And I will, I, I will believe the statements coming from uh, Isaiah's mother about what happened. Uh, the fact that even the courts said he showed no remorse and it was he was pleading guilty because of what it could do to him in the future. So it was the I'll plead guilty because I got caught, not because yes. I feel bad about it. And this could have negative impacts on me in the future. Which he is only bad. cared because he got caught. He only got yeah, he only cared because he got caught and he knew what this could do to him in the future with the path he was on. Because even at 16 years old, he had already been recruited and committed to University of North Dakota. They would have known about it then. Right. Yet they still kept him. Even if they found out about it a year after they recruited him, they could have done something about it then. Now, I was honestly disturbed at the fact you look at Twitter and how many people were upset that people were calling it out. I'm sorry, but actions have consequences, some harsher than others. If this was came out that at 12 years old, you know, won't even use Mitchell Miller at 12 years old, a hockey prospect, you know, maybe swiped a bag of chips and a pop. And now you're talking 18, six years later and there hasn't been anything else. Okay. Whatever. That, that's something you can leave in the past and move on for. This is a mindset of behavior that is just absolutely disgusting that happened here. You, well, there was bold- a major there's a major mindset on social media that there was almost a a bit of victim blaming going on as well, which was disgusting. There was the sentiment of, well, it was bullying, but you know, no, I don't know. This was straight up racism and assault and people are trying to blame the victim and give the kid a pass and say, well, he was 14, you know, who cares? It doesn't make it right. You know better. You know better at that age that going after someone because of their their, disability or their race is wrong. Sorry, let me rephrase that. You should know. And whether you do or you don't doesn't make it any better. You should know at that age that what you are doing is absolutely horrendous and wrong and that it it shouldn't be happening. Now, the one thing you talked about, like on the victim blaming, one of the, there was a, an NHL reporter that had brought up the fact that yes, Based Mitchell, in St. Louis. Yeah. I don't really want to say his name, but the St. Louis reporter covers the blues said that yes, what Mitchell Miller did was bad, blah, 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 blah. But you know, the victim's father was arrested for what, whatever. And it's like, how is that even relevant? It has nothing to do with it. So what you're, are you saying that, because potentially, and I don't even know if that's true. I'm not saying it is. But what does that have to do with anything? Are you trying to say that it justifies Mitchell Miller's behavior to his son at that point in time? That's just disgusting. Like, 
that is horrible thing to say. Who cares what happened? Because he only reported that piece of it, not whether, you know, to back anything up, he just made a claim. So is he reporting something he heard on Twitter? Is he reporting something that is true? We don't know, but he's thrown it out there for that everyone who thinks that this cancel culture mentality is wrong. And I'm sorry, it's not cancel culture for this incident. This is a deplorable, disgusting act that deserves to be punished. Mitchell Miller should not, in my opinion, be able to earn a very good career playing hockey for what he did because the victim will most likely suffer with that for the rest of his life. How many people do you know that have been bullied for one reason or another, just get over it and have never have any issues with it? Another thing that annoyed me in the whole situation, which I found disappointing, was one of the reasons why Arizona drafted him in the first place was because they wanted to give the kid a second chance and they wanted him to almost become the, the spokesperson for uh, ending bullying and racism in hockey. Well, if that's going to be your mindset, how about you do a little bit of more due diligence beforehand and find out if this kid had actually learned his lesson and you very quickly would have found out had the Arizona Coyotes gone and interviewed Isaiah and his mother and his family, they very quickly would have learned that, no, this kid has not learned his lesson. So why would we want to use him as a spokesperson for, you know, giving a second chance and, 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 and speaking out on, on racism in hockey and poor decision by the Arizona Coyotes. They, they deserve a lot of the blame here as well. Apparently, and I know they've they've subsequently denounced his his draft pick, and he's no longer a member of the organization. But let's face it, they wouldn't have done anything had the mother not spoken out against what had happened. Like, let's not turn a blind eye to this. They're only trying to save face at this point. They're not being proactive in any manner. It's all about saving face. Oh, absolutely! Like. The, some of the reports I've seen online is that there was audible gasps in other draft rooms for other teams when he was taken. So, you know, now even the University of North Dakota kind of took that same stance, as you mentioned, to the Coyotes with helping turn him around and use him as a, you know, try and be a leader against bullying. Well, they've now, the, the president of the university said, he's not playing hockey for us. Now they have to honor the first year of the scholarship they gave him, but that's it. So he may be at uh, UND for a year and then gone unless he's going to pay his own way. But again, they're just trying to save face. I wonder how many backers and alumni went to them and said, Hey, if you want to continue to see money from us, he's not playing because they were all about the redemption tour as well when it came to him. I do, in some sense, appreciate the fact they didn't kick him out of the school because maybe, just maybe, he can learn something while he's there. His dream of playing hockey is over, and thank God, because he should not be in the limelight like that, as such as what an athlete can be. People of his character do not deserve to be in the limelight. But I am 
somewhat apathetic to the some people deserve second chances and maybe getting to stay within the school maybe he'll use it for good reasons I have my doubts but maybe he'll at least while he's there he'll do good things and maybe learn something but again I have my doubts as to whether he will do that yeah and I, I do believe that people deserve a second chance if they have learned felt remorse and have grown from it and can help use it to change other people's minds. I don't think that's happened in this case. So yeah, I, I just, I think this, hopefully we will the last time we'll have to talk about him because it, uh, it, it, it upset me when it happened for the entire week. I was just, I was pissed off about it. There's no other way to put it. The minute it came down, I reached out to you and I said, we have our show topic. Because yeah. it was so appalling what we were hearing and seeing and what came of it. And I'm very disappointing for the hockey community, but unfortunately not surprising as there are major, major deep-rooted issues in hockey culture that we're not going to touch on today, but are very prevalent. And this is just another one of those examples. Yeah, I think, um, I think just, just to kind of look at what happened in the playoffs with the hockey diversity Alliance and the stand they took was all about um, getting racism out of the sport. And then this guy gets drafted into it, right? You get a guy just take like, just go outside of hockey, right? You look at Colin Kaepernick takes a stand for social injustices and he's blackballed from the league. Yet a racist gets drafted into hockey. And no nothing sense. would have come of it had the family said something. Yeah, absolutely. He would have just continued on. It was the turn a blind eye to the situation. Yeah. Now, whether you agree or disagree with our opinions, we'd love to hear from you guys. You can reach out to us on our Twitter at the BleacherCon1 and at the BleacherCon2. We want to know, how do you feel? Does he deserve a second chance? Or, or do you agree with us that he got what was coming to him and hopefully – down the road he can learn from it reach out to us let us know how you feel brings us back to we were kind of mentioned a little bit the world series there game six earlier in our that's offside now we're going to take a look at something that happened kind of during the game and post game with justin turner uh apparently the day of game five he had an inconclusive covid19 test result and then they did the testing again before game six and it came back positive. Unfortunately, by the time they got it, it was already the seventh inning. So he had been around the team all day, day before in the game next to the Rays playing with a positive COVID-19 test. Now he was lifted from the game, put in isolation, which has got, just got to be, you feel bad for the guy in that sense because you know, you work all this time, get to the World Series, you're in a position where you're, you're, you know, potentially going to win and you got to leave. Um, so what happened afterwards, though, Trevor, that we're going to talk about? The fact that he broke isolation after his team won the World Series to come back out onto the field and celebrate with his teammates is unbelievable, in my opinion. There was no regard for anybody else's safety, no regard, no concern at all for anybody else on the field except himself. And I somewhat understand 
the the arguments. Well, this has been a long time coming, and he'll never get an opportunity like this again. You're right; he probably won't. But when you're in the middle of a global pandemic crisis, and you're being so selfish and putting yourself ahead of the health and safety of everybody else who was on that field at that time is incredibly selfish. And I know many people will say, but he's a young athlete. He's not at risk. You're right. He's probably not. And neither were most of the people on the field. But those aren't the people we have to worry about. Say he did pass on the virus to a few other teammates. And as of now, one of the Rays' wives has it. And I'm surprised there hasn't been more come out. But what if he passed it on to those people who then subsequently passed it on to other family members and then there were major issues and deaths? That is why it was a problem. And that is why he is selfish. And that is why it is ridiculous that he was on the field with his mask off. Yeah, he... Major League Baseball had officials down there where he was in isolation. When the game ended, they told him he couldn't go out. They they told him he couldn't go out. Some of the Los Angeles Dodgers officials, executives said, no, like you got to stay in isolate, isolation. We get it. It's horrible. It sucks. But you got to stay. He disagreed. He disobeyed. He left. And apparently even some, of, some other Dodger executives were okay with that. Um they now, all turned a blind eye to it yeah. and pretended to say, oh, we didn't even see him on the field. Yeah. Afterwards, they were all, you know, you know, pulling the, oh, we didn't see him out there. Oh, was he even out there? You know, I think someone tried to say, oh, I didn't know he was out there as he was standing in camera view behind him on the field as giving an interview. Now, if he would have gone out, maintained social distance, kept his mask on, still bad, not as bad. Problem was, team picture, he's sitting next to Dave Roberts and a bunch of his teammates with his mask on. Then he pulls it down. Then he pulls it off. Now he's got it off. He's sitting close proximity to every one of his, to, to a lot of his teammates and his manager. He, there was a picture of him giving his wife a kiss on the field, knowing that he's positive for COVID-19. He's holding the trophy. He's doing interviews, all these kind of things. And then some of his teammates were even defending it at the end too, saying, oh, he should be out there. It's not, a, you know, absolutely. He should be on the field. We, yeah, we know it's not a big deal. It is for those reasons you said, but where I kind of look at major league baseball, having to own some of this is wildcard series. Let's go back to the Rays and the Jays watching those games. There's no fans there. There was no fans at any of those wildcard series across baseball. You get to the uh, divisional series Again, no fans. Now you hit the LCSs and in San Diego, there was no fans in, where the, uh, the Rays were playing and Houston. In Texas, where the National League, uh, League Championship was being played and the World Series, the Dodgers were there for both of those series. Both of those series they allowed fans in the stands a limited number. And they, you know, you look on TV and they're all nicely spread throughout and keeping their space. But I saw a picture on Twitter where someone who was at the game saying, Oh, you think the social distancing and the controls are in place during the game? 
here's batting practice. So before the game, you had all those fans that are kept away and separated from each other. And the players are all down along the baselines in the dugout, trying to get autographs, trying to get a foul ball, trying to get all that interaction with the players. And guess what happens? You now get a positive case. You went wildcard divisional series and one LCS with no positive cases because there was no fans. And in the one city where they were calling it a bubble, but allowing fans, you did end up with a team that was there for both series, the NLCS and the world series having a positive case. So I put kind of put this on major league baseball by allowing fans in there. You're allowing random people in this bubble that is meant to keep everyone safe and it backfired. Yeah. I'm going to take it back to the team photo and you brought up a really good point about him sitting there with his mask off. And you mentioned that he was sitting next to Dave Roberts. Well, Dave Roberts is a cancer survivor. He has underlying conditions. You're telling me that Justin Turner cared about Dave Roberts' life at that moment? No. He was sitting next to like the most high-risk person probably on the field without his mask on. That is so dangerous and selfish. And I can't believe that the Dodgers organization sloughed it off. He potentially could have infected his manager who could have easily have died from this virus. And the Dodgers are sloughing it off as if there was nothing wrong. And the players, Mookie Betts was on camera, was interviewed, more or less said, well, he has every right to be out here. We don't care. Yeah. He has no right to be out there. Blue are you going to said the same thing? Yeah. Are you feel comfortable going home to your family? Do you now feel comfortable going home and seeing your grandmother who you may not have seen for a long time or your parents? It was so selfish and reckless and dangerous what he did. And I blame major league baseball a, a ton right from the get-go there's rumors that Justin Turner actually tested positive the day before and that he took a retest the day before to make sure and that the Dodgers organization knew even before the game that he had COVID and that major league baseball knew even before the game that he had COVID. How is that even possible? Yeah, they, they had opportunity to postpone this game, uh, right? They, they had the stadium. They had, they had everything they needed. They could have postponed the game, isolated Turner away from the field, from everything else, and done rapid tests on everyone to see everyone else to make sure they were okay. Close out the stadium, get a clean in there, you know, clean everything up, make sure everything's good. They had an opportunity to do that. Now they're going back and investigating and there could be a suspension fine, something coming down for Turner because the league is looking into his actions. Same way they looked into the Houston Astros actions. Well, no, that was cheating. So that get, that'll be okay. Turner will probably get some kind of actual uh, suspension because, you know, that's how major league baseball works. 
is you can cheat to win and that's fine. But, uh, you know, I have a hard time believing that major league baseball who don't forget pretty much owned these laboratories that was doing the testing. I have a hard time believing that they couldn't get results back for a world series game prior to the game starting. There is no way that they didn't have the results before the game. And if they didn't, then whoever is, was in charge of that should immediately have lost their job. You're talking about the world series, the biggest stage of them all. And you're letting players on the field that you don't know the results of their tests, or if there was an inconclusive test, you're not waiting until you have actual results on that player. I just, something's fishy to me there. And I think major league baseball is hiding something. And I think the Dodgers are hiding something. I think they've, they knew full well that Justin Turner had COVID before the game and he was still allowed to play. Yeah. They wanted to call it a bubble, but it wasn't a bubble because you look at the NBA, you look at the NHL, even the MLS return to play tournament that they held in Orlando. There was zero positive cases from that. The NBA didn't have people there. I think maybe to at the end when they had some family who had come into the bubble, but isolated before they came in and then became a part of it. I think uh, the the Heat and the, the Lakers had some small amount of family with them in the bubble near the end. But there was still no positive cases. The NHL didn't have a single positive case in the thousands that they did. The MLS has returned to a full schedule and I haven't heard of any team having anything yet. And I don't, I still don't think they're really allowing fans in there, but baseball went for the dollar. They wanted the money and any attendance they could get. So they, as much as they're going to try and save face by coming down with a punishment, they own a large piece of this as well. I have to give major league baseball a slight bit of credit because up until this time, they had gone over 50 days without a positive but they got lax on their restrictions. And in the middle of the deciding game of the World Series, you get a positive COVID test. What would have happened if there had to have been a game seven? Would they have been even able to play that? Like, I think Major League Baseball dodged a huge bullet in the fact that the Dodgers closed it out that night. You know, maybe if Kevin Cash hadn't pulled Blake Snell there'd be even a bigger story that we'd be talking about right now. And that's the Dodgers not having a bunch of players available for game seven of the world series. They dodged a huge bullet right there. Yeah. I mean, it's a risky one. Cause you're right. What if the Rays were up eight, nothing at that point in time in the seventh inning. And you know, you're going game seven. Does Justin Turner suddenly have an injury come game seven? Uh, who knows? But with that, I mean, what do you guys think of uh, Justin Turner being on the field and the whole situation? Let us know on Twitter, at the BleacherCon1, at the BleacherCon2, and our Facebook page, the Bleacher Connection with Kevin Trevor. So the last topic that we want to talk about today is something that just came down this week in regards to the Ontario Hockey League, and that's a ruling by the provincial government of Ontario that they're not going to allow any body contact or body checking 
during regular season Ontario Hockey League games this season. To me, this is unprecedented. You know, that's a word that's been tossed around a lot in the COVID world. And in the hockey world, this is unprecedented. How can you honestly play hockey and not have some physical contact? It's impossible. And how, how are they going to... How are they going to maintain this rule? I have no idea. Yeah, it's it's odd. I mean, hockey is a contact sport. Even if you just go puck battles along the boards, that's still you're probably in, in more close contact in a puck battle than you are by hitting a guy and skating away. If you're again, it makes no sense. How do you do this? Do you get everyone to go to a seven foot stick so that they can maintain their distance and, and check someone you're going to have some of these players in the OHL very shortly here going to world junior selection camps. So now you're going to be bringing Canadian players, American players, European players, all going to their camps, selection camps, creating a new bubble, a new cohort for them to be part of, and then going back where they're going to go to these selection camps and other places where there is going to be contact. They are going to come and hit each other and play. It's, it sounds like it's the health minister who made the decision and it doesn't sound like there was a lot of conversation between them and the OHL. And I think this is, it's going to be interesting to how it goes because you were saying to me before that the premier tweeted out that he's looking for it to get back to as regular as possible when it comes back. Yes. There was a tweet by the premier, more or less, saying he didn't agree with the ruling and that if we're going to have the Ontario Hockey League come back, it does need to be in as normal of circumstances as possible. And by no means am I saying that I am against the health and safety of the players of the Hockey League. No, that is not what I'm saying. I am all about health and safety for everybody in the world right now. I'm one of the biggest advocates of it that people may know. It's the fact that they're arbitrarily picking body checking as the biggest potential transmission of COVID on the ice. That's in, it it just does not make any sense to me. And I believe the premier is correct in his assessment of, well, if we want this to come back, it needs to be as normal as possible. And having body contact is normal. And let's face it, on the ice, there's a very low chance of transmission if you're being safe off the ice and getting yeah. tested regularly. So, I mean, just let's take a hockey game. You've got, as we already talked about, scrum puck battles along the boards. You have face-offs. You have sitting on the bench these players all live with billeted families. So they're not in that bubble type thing. Now, I think there's a huge miss here where the CHL, the Canadian Hockey League, and its partners in the WHL, the OHL, the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League need to come together with a plan that works for everyone. And I think that includes reaching out to the NHL and getting them involved with the provincial governments and whoever's been making these decisions to come up with a plan. 
I think it's in the best interest of the NHL to be involved in trying to get something set up that's going to work, that's going to keep the players safe. They just ran their playoffs for months and keeping everyone safe. Big difference is the CHL and its three leagues can't afford to hunker down in one arena and things like this. What I think can be done, and this is just you know me spitballing, if the leagues took a look at what they're doing, because I'm sure the cost of billeting these players out with families, there's a cost to that, obviously. If you want to keep them as safe as possible, because they're still going to school. These are all kids that are in high school. So they're still doing that. If you took the players and put them into a hotel situation, the money that would go to the cost of building them out to families, redirect that into a potentially housing them all together so that they're their own bubble. They do the online learning. They can stay together. They stay safe. They still have that camaraderie amongst the team because someone said, you know, okay, no body checking, but go sit on a bus for six hours on the way to and from games. Or go have a face off where you're face to face breathing on your opponent. Yeah. There's things that need to be looked at. And I think trying to make it as close to an NHL bubble situation may be something they have to look at this the chl and its three leagues are not a high revenue sports association they, they're not pulling in hundreds of millions of dollars per team most of these teams are getting by and operating just to, to that so they need some help so if, if it comes down to whether the governments need to get involved to help them out to maintain their um viability then so do it because the way it's working if there's no fans and very little revenue for these teams a lot of these teams could be in trouble across the country in the chl yeah i would have to agree with that the the chl is a a revenue a gate revenue driven league where they need fans in the stands to even have any real revenue coming in so it's going to be tremendously difficult for them in that stance um, I know in the Western Hockey League in Western Canada, the plan is to keep the pretty much the teams within their own home provinces and or states because there's teams that play in, in the Washington state. And they're just going to keep them playing against those teams and play the same five teams over and over, which for the most part is, is an okay plan. But for those unfamiliar with Ontario, Ontario is a huge province and doing something like that within Ontario is tremendously difficult just by its sheer size. And in my opinion, there's going to be no way of getting around having travel and having quite a bit of travel and kids on buses. I just don't see how they're going to get around this. And I think it's going to pose problems. And I think another issue that hasn't been talked about is the age demographic of the players in the OHL is a lot lower because you're talking about 16 through 20 year olds. Well, the common consensus amongst younger people is this virus doesn't affect me. So I think the teams are going to have a lot harder time 
enforcing COVID rules with these players because there's this feeling like they have immunity against it and it doesn't affect them. So I think that's a part of the story that has yet to even be told is how are you going to enforce this with a bunch of 16 to 20 year olds? Yeah, it's, it's not going to be easy. And that's where I think they need to get outside assistance and trying to figure a plan out here because it's going to be difficult. Uh, no one really has an idea of what it's going to look like right now for any of the three leagues. I think the Quebec major junior hockey league had four teams start up last weekend or during the week. So they're, they're back at it a little bit, but I know the WHL and OHL haven't started. They have to find the safest way to keep the players healthy. Absolutely. And again, like it's not so much about the game, but you're talking about these kids are trying to, this isn't them playing sports on the weekend for fun. These guys are trying to make a career out of it. Not all of them will. Not all of them are going to go on to the next level of the NHL, the AHL. Some may go, go play in Europe. Some may not play competitive high-level hockey again, but they, it's going to, what is it going to do to their development if they can't showcase what they can do? So, well, and I, you just hit on a very important point in this whole topic to me, and that is these junior hockey leagues are development leagues. These kids are trying to get to the next level, whether that be college hockey or the NHL. It's all about development. You are taking away a major, major portion of that development and for NHL teams' ability to even uh, scout any of these players when you're a major component of the game and the physical nature of it, you're trying to remove it. It doesn't work. If you're going to take that away from a development league, then just take the development league away for a year or until it's safe. It's it, to me, it's going to have bigger re repercussions in not having fans in the stands is going to be a huge issue revenue wise and then not having the same quality of hockey is going to be a, a huge issue talent wise. So it just seems like to me a far-fetched idea and it's not, it's, it's not a solution in the slightest. Yeah. Like the, the Canadian government didn't want to get involved and, and bail out the CFL because with, because of the COVID and not having a season, that's a professional league. Those are guys making, you know, good money to play, play football. None of these kids are making any money, right? Like that's the other piece of it there. They get scholarships afterwards to go to university, which is great because some of them, like, like we said, are not going to go on to the next level, but they at least will be able to go on and get an education, which will help them out, which is awesome. That's part of being in the CHL is you, you get that opportunity. It's just, they have to, it's the making a, broad decision on the ruling without actually having the conversation in the first place of how can we do it? Maybe this, maybe the OHL has a plan that to keep them safe that hasn't been looked at yet, or they hadn't made public, but now they have to work on that. From my understanding, the teams weren't even told. They found out via a social media press release from the Ontario government that this was happening. So that leads me to believe that 
there weren't even hardly conversations. We had heard rumors a few, it might've been a month or so back. Like we had heard rumors, but at that time, it, that's all it was, was a rumor. And then boom, it was fact because it came out and the yeah. teams were caught off guard. Yeah. So it's going to be interesting to see how it all plays out, whether there's some good conversations between both sides to come to an understanding and an agreement of what a return to play will look like in the OHL. But until then, there's just, there's a lot of questions. We haven't even touched on the teams in the United States in all the Canadian hockey league, whether it be the Ontario hockey league or the Western hockey league, that border's not opening anytime soon. And there's been very little discussion on what's going to happen with the United States based teams in the, in the Western hockey league. It's a little easier. There's, I believe five or six teams so they can play them five teams so they can play themselves in the Ontario hockey league. There's only three teams. And one of the initial things they've talked about is the three teams just playing each other for 64 games. You're going to play one team 32 times and another team 32 times. That just, to me, that's a whole other topic, but it's just, it's another offshoot of the whole COVID and how it's going to affect the, the junior hockey leagues. And I would have to imagine they're going to try to relocate these teams into Canada for the upcoming season, maybe base them all out of Toronto or Toronto and Ottawa, and they can play out of the NHL facilities. Well, I know that was a bit of an idea for the AHL with the NHL possibly having the all Canadian division was getting each Canadian teams, uh, American affiliate minor league team into Canada to play. So they're at least close by and they could cross the border uh, to, or at least get called up. So that has, yeah. that was an idea in the AHL. So if there's any junior hockey fans out there, we would love to hear from you with your take on this topic. Again, you can reach us on our Facebook page, the Bleacher Connection with Ken and Trevor, or you can reach us on Twitter at the BleacherCon1 and at the BleacherCon2. And what do you guys think is the, the solution and how do you feel about watching junior hockey with no body checking or no physical contact. As you can tell, I think it's far-fetched, but I'd love to hear what you guys have to say. Yeah, it's going to be a difficult one for that's for sure. Well, we want to thank everyone for listening in this week. As always, you can uh, check us out every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Eastern on the Unhinged Network, as well as uh, all major podcast platforms. Once again, thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks, everyone.